This episode of Can He Do That is brought to you by Squarespace. Use code POST for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. President Trump took a nine-day international trip last week. And over the course of the trip, which included stops in Brussels for a NATO summit and Sicily for a G7 meeting, Trump took some actions that were unsettling for our foreign allies. In Brussels, Trump chastised fellow NATO members and demanded that they meet payment obligations. And in Sicily, he failed to commit to remaining in the Paris Climate Agreement. And then, Thursday afternoon, he took that failure to commit in Sicily one step further. Trump announced that the United States would withdraw from the Paris Accord. In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord, but begin negotiations. So what are the ramifications of Trump's actions toward our allies and, and his reluctance towards some international agreements? What are the consequences for America's standing on the world stage? I'm Allison Michaels, and this is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Today, to help us answer some of these key questions about how Trump's latest actions affect our relationships with other countries, we have The Post's White House bureau chief, Philip Rucker, back on the show. So, Phil, you just returned from Trump's first trip abroad, where you were traveling alongside the president. Can you tell us exactly what happened in the portion of his trip that was spent in Brussels? Yeah, so it was a two-day period in Brussels, and it was probably the most difficult stretch of the trip for for President Trump. He had just returned from the Middle East, where he had a pretty successful and and warm reception to land in Brussels, and he went to the NATO headquarters. They have a brand new sort of glass and steel headquarters near the airport in Brussels, and it's really a testament to sort of globalism and bureaucracy, and and in came Donald Trump, and it was like a hand grenade was set off (laughs) at the headquarters. He participated in a ceremony with the leaders of all 28 other NATO partner countries, and uh, they were unveiling a, a piece of steel from the World Trade Center tower in 9-11 in honor of NATO's commitment to help the U.S. through Article 5. And so President Trump was giving brief remarks on that. But instead of talking about 9-11 and Article 5, he he basically lectured the leaders of NATO on not paying enough for their own defenses. And they were all lined up right there next to him, and he just let it rip. And it was a pretty remarkable moment. Yeah. So just for some more context, what exactly is NATO? So NATO is the uh, the North Atlantic uh, Treaty Organization. It it is basically the structure for for the West since World War II. It was established and, and has been led by the United States, but includes all of our European allies. And it's the treaty organization through which we help each other. And it's been a real bedrock for Western democracy for nearly a century now. German Chancellor Angela Merkel, she said this past weekend that Europe can no longer rely on the United States, that it should rely more on itself. How does her her statement reflect some of what you saw from Trump at the NATO meeting? Yeah, that was a really remarkable statement by Angela Merkel. Uh, she was said it while campaigning in Germany. Uh, she's up for re-election later this year. And, you know, it was an admission that Germany and other European countries can no longer count on the United States for support. Uh, so it was a really remarkable statement from Merkel. And I think it speaks to uh, how a lot of the other European leaders feel. She's sort of the dean uh, of the club, if you will. 
uh, be given how many years she's been a chancellor, how many years she's been in power. So let's move on to the next part of, of Trump's trip, which was in Italy for a G7 meeting. What happened there, especially in regards to the Paris Climate Agreement? So the G7 meeting is a very different atmosphere than the NATO meeting. It's a meeting only of seven world leaders, and these are the seven sort of wealthiest Western countries. It used to be the G8, and then Russia was kicked out a few years ago. So it's now the G7. And the the seven leaders, plus the heads of the European Union, got together in Sicily in Italy, a really beautiful kind of mountaintop island where they they were in an old historic theater and, and in a meeting room, very intimate setting. And they talk about a number of issues. They talked about Syria. They talked about North Korea. They talked about other foreign policy threats and counterterrorism. But they also talked about climate change. And that was the portion of the meeting where the other leaders kind of tried to school Donald Trump to, to make him understand the value of the Paris Accord, to make him understand how important it is for America to show leader, leadership uh, on climate change, on combating global warming. And Trump's advisors said afterwards, Gary Cohn, he said, look, the president has learned a lot. He's more knowledgeable about the issue now. His thinking is evolving. And that, you know, is a testament to what the Europeans impressed upon him. Of course, Trump came home, and I think he was pulled in another direction. He's always had an inclination to get out of the Paris Agreement. Right. He campaigned on that. In he, fact. he campaigned on canceling it. That was the word he used. <laughs> um, he, he just feels, generally speaking, that these international treaties and agreements are not beneficial to the United States. He wants to disentangle the United States from these commitments. But he also has felt like uh, the emission standards requirement uh, and under the Paris Agreement, it's basically every country in the agreement agrees to, over a period of time, lower their greenhouse gas emissions to improve the environment. He feels like the standards that were set for the United States under President Obama were too extreme and would jeopardize jobs, especially manufacturing jobs in places where he won strong support in the Midwest, the industrial Midwest and and Appalachia. Okay, so since then, Trump had been deciding about whether or not the U.S. would actually stay in the agreement. And on Thursday, he finally announced that the U.S. would, in fact, withdraw. So what does that mean? What happens now? Well, it means a few things. First of all, it raises serious doubt around the world about the commitment of the United States, which is uh, the world's largest economy and the second largest emitter of greenhouse gases, about the U.S. commitment to curbing global warming. This is not a pact agreed to by a set of nations or a few nations. I mean, this is every nation in the world with the exception of two, uh, Nicaragua and Syria. Now it will be three, the United States. Uh, so it's a pretty, pretty explosive development. It really weakens the Paris Agreement. And, and without the U.S. participation, there's not much of an agreement there anyways. So it, it really is a setback in the global effort to curb climate change. But it also, domestically speaking, underscores Trump's commitment to undo these global alliances and these global agreements. Trump clearly feels like it's better for job creation and manufacturing in the United States to not be a part of the Paris Accord. And so we're not going to be a part of it, irrespective of what other countries would expect of us or what it would mean for our alliances around the world, especially in Europe. All of these things combined have clearly set a new relationship between the U.S. and and some of our allies, especially those in Europe. So let's just answer this fundamental question, which is, why is it important to have strong relationships with Europe and with other allies? I mean, I think you could go back to September 11th, 2001, for an example of why these alliances can be beneficial to the United States when we were uh, attacked by al-Qaeda in New York and at the Pentagon 
Uh, our European friends rushed to help. They helped with intelligence sharing. They helped by sending troops to Afghanistan, and they were there to have our backs. And I think there's an expectation, there has been for decades now, that if one of our friends in Europe is uh, in trouble, we're going to be there to help them. America's going to be there to help them. You know, this America first vision is different. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't want to have a blanket agreement that he's going to always uh, always have somebody's back. He wants to be able to make a decision in the moment uh, every day about what's in the best interest of the United States. So are there consequences to that kind of decision making when it comes to international agreements like NATO? We talked to someone who knows NATO quite well and can answer that question. That's former ambassador to NATO, Evo Dalder. Evo was appointed ambassador by President Obama in 2009, and he's currently the president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Here he is. In your time as U.S. ambassador to NATO, how did the U.S. relationship with NATO kind of just factor into our our standing in the world? Well, in some ways, uh, NATO has been, as many presidents have put it, the the cornerstone of American foreign policy since the end of World War II. We made a, a fundamental decision in 1945 that unlike in 1918, we were going to stay engaged in the world and not retreat back to the continental United States. And there were a number of institutions that were built up to make that possible. In the security sphere, NATO was the key. It was the way in which we would relate to all countries of Europe on security issues and and increasingly on uh, a political dialogue and political issues. Whenever a, a development happened internationally, one of the first people we would talk to would be our allies in Europe. They're, they emerged as the strongest, most capable allies, the ones most likely to be on our side when uh, there was a conflict or a dispute, uh, and the ones we could rely on most politically, economically, and militarily to be on our side. And that continued even after uh, the end of the Cold War when the Soviet Union uh, disintegrated. And by the time I was uh, ambassador in the beginning of the Obama administration, NATO really was one of the core institutions to deal with the major global threats that we were facing. Okay, so let's bring this forward a little bit to present day. One thing that President Trump recently did not do, essentially, in his speech to to NATO is express a commitment to Article 5. Can you explain what Article 5 is and why a decision not to commit to it in his speech was notable? Well, Article 5 is the core of the treaty. It states that an attack, an armed attack against one will be considered to be an armed attack against all NATO members and that uh, the NATO members would then take the appropriate measures, including the use of, of military force, in order to come to the defense of an ally. So it is the collective defense provision of the treaty. Without Article 5, the treaty, quite frankly, is meaningless. And every president, of course, has come to Europe to reassure allies that we, the United States, would be there to help defend them uh, in case of an armed attack. Now, why was it important for President Trump to reiterate that? Really for two reasons. First and most importantly, because during the campaign, he had raised serious doubts about uh, his view of NATO and his view of the utility of NATO. He had called it obsolete. He had said that its original mission had disappeared. He said that it didn't deal with the threat of terrorism. The second reason why it was important is because he unveiled a monument uh, at the new NATO headquarters to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And it was on 9-12, September 12, 2001, that NATO invoked for the first and only time Article 5. 
in order to uh, respond to the armed attack that had occurred against the United States in, in Washington and uh, New York and Pennsylvania. And NATO acted by providing airborne surveillance aircraft to police the air, uh, airspace of the United States. So coming to NATO for the first time after the campaign and having the unveiling of the 9-11 memorial, not uttering the words, I support Article 5, was seen as a suggestion that perhaps he did not support Article 5. Okay, so another thing that Trump has repeated many times and and also repeated again in Brussels, he sort of chastised other nations for not paying their fair share towards NATO. Is this a correct framing of what's actually happening? How do contributions to NATO actually work? It is a correct framing to a large extent uh, on on the sort of the, the big picture. The big picture is that uh, the Europeans have cut their defense spending quite significantly since about 2000. So if you look at non-U.S. defense spending in NATO in 2000, collectively they were spending about 2% of their uh, collective GDP on defense. And by 2011, it had dropped to to 1.25% of GDP. Many administrations, including the Obama administration, has told the Europeans that it's important that they increase defense spending. And an increase is occurring. Uh, It started in 2014 following the invasion of uh, Ukraine by Russia and the annexation of Crimea. Uh, NATO, for the first time ever, agreed that the allies that were not spending 2% uh, of of their GDP on defense would do so within a decade, by 2024. And as a result, defense spending in 23 out of 28 countries has been going up last year. More countries are starting to meet the 2% guideline, and we're moving in the right direction. We could do it faster, uh, we should, and they should do it faster, but in essence, the, the movement is in the right direction. What happens if, if the United States' commitment to NATO isn't particularly strong? Does the entire alliance fall apart? Does it matter that much? Well, uh, the alliance ultimately is, uh, is a treaty commitment, so it's the law of the land by the United States. But the degree to which countries adhere to treaties can change. It really is an agreement based on trust, based on the confidence that all allies will fulfill their commitment to Article 5 and collective defense. If that trust is broken, if somehow allies start thinking, well, you know, maybe the United States is not going to be there, maybe we can't count on them, they're going to look for other alternatives. And those alternatives can be a European alternative, which is what Johnson Merkel talked about, or a European addition to a transatlantic commitment, or indeed it can be a more national alternative, that if we break away from our embrace of institutions, then maybe if war comes, we will be left alone. Uh, As many countries thought in 1914-18 when they remained neutral or tried to remain neutral in in, in World War I and then again tried to do so in World War II. Or alternatively, they can decide maybe we should align with another country, another major power, a country like Russia. So it's that uncertainty about where are countries going to go, how are they going to forge their future foreign relations with, with neighbors and other countries that is created by this uncertainty, an uncertainty that, that really is, is emerging for the first time uh, in the 68-year history of this alliance. Is there a way that what Trump has, has said and done in regards to NATO can actually make result in a stronger Europe? Yes, it could. And, and if that's the intent, that would be a good outcome. Uh, there is the possibility, and I think the election of uh, President uh, Macron in France 
opens up the possibility of restarting the Franco-German motor of European unity and, and, and integration. Every major step uh, forward on European integration has relied on the combination of Berlin and Paris moving in tandem to bring along all the other countries. And clearly, we are seeing one such attempt uh, in the statements by Chancellor Merkel to say that if we can no longer fully rely on the United States, then a stronger Europe deciding its own future is what is necessary. Now, that's easier said than done. It will take a lot of uh, effort. And ultimately, uh, when it comes to military capability, uh, Europe is, uh, has cut its defenses so much that the ability to be a strong military power without the United States, and indeed possibly without Great Britain, is something well in the future. That said, the United States should welcome a strong Europe. We want a Europe that is more capable to uh, act not only independently, but also in concert with us. And that has been something we have encouraged uh, Europeans to do for many, many years. Let's pivot a little bit to talk about the Paris Climate Agreement. Can the U.S. just leave agreements like this? Does the whole thing fall apart? Kind of explain the process. Well, an agreement like Paris has provisions about how countries can withdraw. One of those provisions is that you cannot actually withdraw until the uh, agreement has been in effect for three years, which would be sometime in November 2019. The, the agreement came to, into effect, was ratified by 55 states, and, and those that uh, emitted more than 55% uh, of greenhouse gases in, in November 2016. So the actual withdrawal cannot occur until uh, sometime in 20, uh, November 2019, and then it takes a year to withdraw. So the formal withdrawal cannot happen until the uh, November 4th, I believe, 2020, which is the day after the presidential elections in the United States. So that's the formal mechanism. Uh, now, the U.S. can also withdraw from the underlying treaty framework, which is the U.N. Uh, Climate Change uh, Convention, uh, signed in 1992, which would be another way in which to withdraw, except that this is a treaty that was uh, ratified by the U.S. Senate. Uh, and withdrawing from treaties that have been ratified by the Senate is more difficult than an executive agreement, which is how uh, the Paris Agreement was ratified. And finally, of course, the United States can say it shouldn't have been an executive agreement. It should be a treaty and submitted for ratification by the U.S. Senate, in which case it would not go into effect legally until the Senate uh, ratified it, which would require two-thirds of the U.S. Senate to agree, which is not likely to happen. So there, it, it's a complicated legal process. The more immediate political impact is that it was a commitment by the United States to reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, by 2025 that enabled this agreement to be uh, negotiated and agreed to, and a unwillingness to fulfill our part of that bargain will lead other, may lead other countries to say, okay, we're not going to do that either. Uh, and it's that uh, lack of American leadership in fulfilling this international uh, agreement that is, at bottom, uh, going to be problematic for uh, the entire effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So let's just address the broader question in all of this, which is, how do all of these pieces together kind of affect America's standing in the world? Are there long-term consequences of this? You know, are there positive outcomes from this? Kind of what, what do we see happening as a result of Trump's latest actions abroad? Well, I think, I think there's a, an interesting attempt here to, to shift the way we think about America's engagement. Uh, so for really the last 70 years, since the end of World War II, uh, the United States has engaged the world 
uh, not only to advance our own narrow uh, self-interest, economic, security, and, and political, but also in the belief that if we created a stable international world order, one in, of open markets in which trade would happen, one in strong alliances uh, in which we would, by forward deploying our forces, provide security for others, which would also provide security for us, a world order in which human rights and democracy and freedom and the rule of law was in, in extended uh, to more and more countries. In the fundamental belief that if the United States led in creating such an order, we would be in a world that was more peaceful, more stable, more prosperous, not only for others, but importantly for us. President Trump uh, has made very clear for the last 30 years that he thinks the cost of American leadership outweighs its benefits. And the, the, the idea of providing American leadership in order to maintain this, this U.S.-led, liberal, whatever you want to call it, world order, uh, as being too costly was at the, at the core and is at the core of President Trump's uh, view of international politics and international relations. This episode of Can He Do That? is brought to you by Squarespace. Create a beautiful website with Squarespace's all-in-one platform. Use code POST for 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's code P-O-S-T. Throughout this whole process, it seems like Trump has been upsetting at least some of our allies. Does Trump see that inherently as a win? And if so, a win for whom? I think he sees it as a win for America. <laughs> and, and he'll be the first to tell you that. Um, you know, he feels like these alliances are not always serving our needs, that oftentimes America has bent over backwards to serve the needs of other countries. He especially sees that in trade. We have just trade deficits with a lot of these countries, especially Germany, and that has really bothered him. But he also sees it in, in defense and security cooperation. He feels like the United States is is spending more of, of our dollars and using more of our equipment and, and men and blood and tears uh, to help other countries, and we're not getting the same benefits in return. Some have suggested that Trump feels more comfortable with these dictators who flatter him than he does with leaders of democracies around the world who treat him kind of as an equal. Did you see any truth to that when you were abroad with him? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> it was a really <laughs> revealing trip. It was nine days. And we started in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and Trump loved the reception he received in Riyadh. You know, he landed on Air Force One and there was an enormous red carpet that rolled on for what looked like miles. And King Salman of Saudi Arabia, the head of the royal family there, came down to greet him at the foot of the plane. There was a flyover of Saudi jets that left red, white, and blue smoke behind. I mean, he was treated like a, a, a member of the royal family. When he got to his hotel that night in Riyadh at the, the Ritz-Carlton, his official portrait was beamed, uh, illuminated on the outside of the building. And then he goes to Europe, and the reception was so very different. There was no portrait of Trump beamed on the buildings in Brussels. Uh, <laughs> there, uh, you know, the, the European leaders, actually, some of them didn't even talk to him when they were at these, these photo ops and so forth. It was a really striking reception, if you look at the body language. And he was clearly less comfortable there. So 
another thing is that Trump isn't really known for certainty. He often changes his mind. We've seen this repeatedly. His stances vary. He can be convinced of different things by different players in the White House. Is it perhaps the case that European allies might not mind what was an absence of reassurances because they don't see those as any more of a sure thing than if he did overtly commit to something like Article 5, for example? Uh, I think that might be right. Yeah. I mean, I think the European allies are looking for him to make these commitments and declarations, and he just doesn't make them. And we're just supposed to believe him. Uh, It was interesting that day at NATO, he said nothing about Article 5 in his speech after the day before his advisors had previewed that he would. And then he said nothing. And then the advisors all came back to the press corps and said, no, 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 no. Of course he stands by Article 5. You're being ridiculous. This is laughable that you would think he wouldn't. But, you know, we've covered Donald Trump long enough to know that he changes his mind all the time. And unless you hear it from him, from his mouth, from his lips, uh, you can't take it to the bank. You just can't. Yeah. Okay, Phil. So last question here. Is this, it's essentially, can Trump isolate our strongest allies by seemingly backing out of key alliances and bilateral agreements? Can, can he do that? Uh, he can try to, <laughs> and it may have that outcome. But, uh, you know, the other thing is, as much as we need them in these alliances, they need America, too. And so I think there's going to be a real reluctance from uh, from some of our allies in Europe, for example, to turn their backs on Trump or to, to walk away or or to isolate themselves. I think there's just going to be a continual effort to try to win him over and, uh, and, and strengthen these alliances because it's beneficial to Europe to have the alliance with America just as it's beneficial to America. Uh, and so I don't think anybody wants to pull the plug on it yet. Yeah. Phil, thank you so much for being here. You guys can follow Phil Rucker on Twitter at... Uh, Philip Rucker with one L. Or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes with two L's. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for listening. If you guys like this podcast, keep listening and subscribe. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, subscribe on Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. Keep listening and we will keep providing you some great episodes. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the cheerful Carol Alterman with design help this week from Kat Rudell Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. If you like Can He Do That, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan's interviews reveal the people behind today's biggest news. Or try Presidential, where host Lillian Cunningham spent a year exploring the character and legacy of each of the American presidents. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.